0: You're listening to the Pursue God Truth Podcast, the official channel for faith and life topics at PursueGod.org. Join us every week as we explore new topics from a biblical perspective. We're continuing our journey through the gospel of Mark today, and we find ourselves in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Jesus is just coming off of the mountain with Peter, James, and John. We've seen him glorified in the transfiguration. And as soon as he comes off the mountain, he finds the other nine disciples embroiled in conflict with the religious leaders. And Jesus seizes the moment to reveal a secret about the effectiveness of faith. And before we jump into the text, the question that I want you to think about is where do you turn when faced with the impossible? We're going to see a situation here where a, A father thought he was facing an impossible situation. He turned to Jesus. Where do you turn when you're faced with the impossible? We're going to look first at the conflict. And we see that the enemy's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to destroy relationships, lives, futures. And we see it in the conflict between the religious leaders and the disciples. We see it in this demon-possessed boy and the demon's attempts to bring him physical harm and even death. So let's jump into the first part of the passage, beginning in verse 14. It says, When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them, and some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe, and they ran to greet him. What is all this arguing about? Jesus asked. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He is possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever this spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said to them, You faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Context is always important. So again, just to set the context, Jesus has just returned from his transfiguration on the mountain. And we saw that Jesus was glorified on the mountain. He received public affirmation from God the Father. This had to be very encouraging as the ministry of Jesus marches on towards the cross. I think it was also a nice break for Jesus from the constant demands, the pressure of the crowds, and the conflict with the religious leaders. It was also a great time to further clarify James's, John's, and Peter's understanding of who Jesus was to help them see a little more clearly, like we talked about a few weeks ago, with the gradual healing of the blind man. But as soon as he's off the mountain and approaches the other disciples, he sees they're embroiled in conflict with the religious leaders. Verse 14 says that there's a large crowd surrounding the disciples, and the religious leaders are arguing with them. And the text gives us some clues as to what they're arguing about. A man has brought his son to be healed from a demonic spirit, and the disciples were unable to heal him. Can't you just hear the accusations from the religious leaders? I'm sure you can get a feel for their contempt as the religious leaders mocked the disciples for not being able to heal the boy. See, you're a fraud. Your rabbi is a fraud. If you had proper authority, you'd be able to heal this boy. If you were following the teachings of the elders and adhering to all of the oral traditions, you would be able to deliver him for this evil spirit. If this teacher of yours was really who he said he was, you'd be able to do it. And I imagine it's probably a good thing that James and John, the sons of thunder, and and Peter, who tended to be pretty boisterous, were with Jesus during this. Or maybe they would have wanted to throw hands when the arguing started. It's interesting to me that the religious leaders didn't offer to heal the boy to prove that truth is on their side. Wouldn't that have been a great opportunity for them to say, see, let us show you how it's done, but instead, they just criticize. This could have been a great way for them to show all the people crowded around that God had empowered them to bring healing to the boy, but they didn't. They were more concerned with denouncing the disciples and denouncing Jesus and smearing his character than they were for caring for this man and his son. I hope that we are never more concerned with proving our point than we are in ministering to the people that we're in conflict with. We are certainly called to speak truth and love, but there should be a purpose in our conflict with others that is above and beyond just proving we're right. Scripture tells us that this evil spirit caused the boy to be mute, and that's important. This might be one of the reasons the religious leaders didn't try to heal him. It was a common superstition of that time and that culture that you needed to know the name of the evil spirit to exercise authority over him. So if the boy was mute, there'd be no way to get the evil spirit to identify himself. This would have made the evil spirit even more difficult to remove in the minds of the religious leaders. And maybe some of that carried over into the minds of the disciples. We don't know for sure, but that, that could be one reason they were unsuccessful. But we see conflict here. We see really the enemy trying to fulfill his purpose. John 10.10, Jesus is talking and he warns us that the thief's purpose, he's talking about Satan there, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. But my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. And we see the devil's purpose on full display He's destroying relationships. He's trying to bring physical harm, even death, to the young boy. This evil spirit throws him violently to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth. This sounds a lot like the symptoms of epilepsy. It tells us later in the passage that this spirit has often thrown him into water or into fire to try and destroy him. Our culture tries to paint this idea that the devil have some hang-ups and some areas of cruelty, but that he also has some redeeming qualities. Numerous TV shows and movies have tried to present this softer-looking devil. Guys, that is a lie from the pit of hell. The devil has zero redeeming qualities. He seeks only to kill and steal and destroy. He is in utter rebellion against the perfect, holy God of the universe, and he knows he can't win, so he's just hoping to take as many down with him as he possibly can. Now, the Bible reminds us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the evil rulers of this world. Now, in this particular situation, it seems clear that an evil spirit was the cause of the epilepsy. I mean, it's very clear in the passage that this this young boy is suffering, from all the symptoms of epilepsy, but there is an evil spirit causing it. And I think here is where people seem to want to go to one of two extremes. On one side, there are people that want to deny the spiritual, and they act like any physical or mental ailment is simply the result of some chemical, anatomical, genetic, or physiological failure. And then on the other side, the other extreme, we want to attribute every ailment to spiritual warfare or demonic influence. And I would submit that neither of those are healthy. The reality is we do live in a broken, fallen world. Sometimes our bodies just break down. But to think that all of a sudden the devil just stopped warring on us like he did in biblical times is silly. There's no biblical foundation for that. So I have no doubt that some of the mental and physical illness we see around us has a demonic connection, but we need to make sure we're not saying that all of it does. In fact, don't blame demonic influence for the decisions you make. Sometimes we just make poor decisions, right? It's like that person who says, yeah, the the devil made me turn left at that intersection even though the light had already turned red. The devil didn't make you do that. You just saw the guy before you go, and you figured your time is more valuable than everyone else's, and your errands are more important, so you ran it. And if you're going to keep doing that, take that fish sticker off your car. We see that Jesus is frustrated with the situation. He's frustrated at the lack of faith. He actually calls the people faithless. In verse 19, he says, You faithless people... How long must I put up with you? I think it's a good question to ask, who's he talking to there? Is he just talking to the religious leaders? Is he just talking to the crowds? Or is he also talking to the disciples? The disciples were unable to deliver this young boy from this evil spirit, and we're going to see later in the chapter, it was because of a lack of faith. So I think he's talking to everyone. I think he's talking to the religious leaders, These religious leaders who pushed back against him at every turn, who not only had doubt but had disbelief. I think he's talking to the crowd at large, and I think he's talking to the disciples. The disciples weren't able to deliver this boy. Jesus had given them authority over demons. They had healed others from demonic influence. They had cast out demons before, but something caused them to be ineffective here. Maybe they felt more pressure because of the eyes of the religious leaders. Maybe they got prideful. Maybe they thought it was about their power. Maybe with the religious leaders around, they thought, hey, now is our chance to show these guys that even though we didn't study under them, we're more powerful than they are. Now is our chance to show them that we're the ones that Jesus chose instead of them. We don't know for sure. I think it could have been any of those elements, We definitely know from the end of the passage that there's a lack of faith involved in their part. So that's certainly part of it. And we see here that Jesus is annoyed at their lack of faith. He's frustrated. He says, how long must I put up with you? In another gospel, it says not only that they were faithless, that they were perverse. You know, in this passage, we see the long suffering of Jesus on full display. If you've spent much time in your Bible, you know that God is described as long-suffering. But have you ever really thought about that word? Long-suffering, right? It's a a synonym for patience. It's, It's a symbol of God putting up with us, of God hanging in there when we don't deserve it. So the reality is Jesus isn't always happy with us, but he loves us in spite of that. Jesus went to the cross in spite of his frustration at our lack of faith. We don't always give Jesus warm fuzzies. He was annoyed at the lack of faith. Now That may not line up with your picture of Jesus. You might even find that offensive, but scripture is clear that he was frustrated with their lack of faith. That actually gives me comfort. It's comforting for me to know that Jesus doesn't give up on me even when he's frustrated at my lack of faith, that he is long-suffering, that his love is greater than just the the pleasure that I might give him in the moment with the way that I behave. The next part of the story after the conflict is we see the healing. And we're going to see in the healing that the father's faith was small, but he brought what little faith he had to Jesus. He was honest about the limits of his faith, and he begged Jesus to increase it. So we're going to pick it back up now in verse 20. So they brought the boy, but when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire or into water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean, if I can, Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. And the father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. I see several things in this passage. First, Here is another example of how the demons know exactly who Jesus is. As soon as this evil spirit sees Jesus, it throws the child into a violent convulsion. The religious leaders didn't recognize Jesus for who he was. Most of the crowd doesn't recognize Jesus for who he truly is. Even the disciples are still trying to figure it out, although they're they're making progress. They understand more about Jesus than they did a couple of chapters ago, but the demons know. This is James 2.19 played out for all to see. James 2.19 says, you say you have faith for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. We see that's exactly what this demon does as he throws this young boy into a violent convulsion. This evil spirit sees Jesus, he acknowledges the power of Jesus and sends the boy into a violent convulsion to try and inflict as much pain as possible before being cast out. And I think if you read this through the eyes of a dad or a mom, you can hear the desperation in the father's voice as he begs, have mercy on us and help us if you can. If I can, Jesus asked, It's like Jesus saying, do you know who you're talking to? Do you know who I am? Now, if anybody else said that, we'd call them arrogant or prideful. But when Jesus says it, he's just reminding us of the glory and honor due him. He is the king of all kings. He's God in the flesh. What do you mean, if I can? Now, think back all the way to Mark chapter 1, one of the first miracles we saw as we began this journey through the gospel of Mark, there was a leper who came to Jesus. And in Mark chapter one, this leper said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. See, the leper's doubt wasn't about the greatness of Jesus. It was about the goodness of Jesus. The leper knew that Jesus could heal him and could make him clean. He just didn't know if he was willing. For the father, it seems to be the opposite. The father seems to believe that Jesus is good. You know, he's, he's coming to him. He sought Jesus out, but he doesn't know if he's great enough. He doesn't know if he's powerful enough. And then Jesus tells him anything is possible if a person believes. Then the father utters one of the most honest statements in all the Bible, a statement that I can so relate to. And one that I've uttered on more than one occasion in my life. He says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. What a powerful statement. The guy's not lying. He did have some belief. I want you to think about his situation. He wouldn't have come to Jesus in the first place if he was filled with disbelief. Back in verse 17, he said, teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. See, his original intent was to bring him to Jesus. But when he got there, Jesus was up on the mountain. So instead, he asks the disciples to heal his son. But he had sought out Jesus. That's who he was looking for. He genuinely believed that Jesus could do something about his desperate situation. If not, he wouldn't have traveled there in the first place. It's also likely this dad was a Jew. He addresses Jesus as teacher or master, depending upon which translation you're reading. The original Greek word here is didaskalo. It's used 31 times in the New Testament. And in most every case it's used, the person who's addressing Jesus by this term is Jewish. So this guy is probably Jewish. So he is subjecting himself to all sorts of ridicule. He's subjecting himself to potential discipline and even ostracism by the religious leaders for bringing his son to Jesus. And you don't do that unless you have at least some belief that he can do something. We talked a few weeks ago about disbelief versus doubt. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Disbelief is the opposite of faith. This man had doubt. He was honest about his doubt. And here's what I think is so cool. He recognized he needed Jesus' help to overcome that doubt. He couldn't overcome it on his own. Maybe you hear that and you can relate to that. Man, I know that I can. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. When I felt God calling me into ministry, I was pretty confident I heard His call. But there was just this nagging doubt in the back of my mind that I wasn't the right guy. And I remember saying, "Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. If I've got this wrong, let me know." When my wife and I both lost our moms within a month of each other, and my kids lost both their grandmothers at that same time, I remember telling God, "I believe You're going to use this for good. I know You have a plan." I believe that, but help my unbelief. I remember leaving the hospital the night a young couple lost their teenage son. He passed away from an infection and went to be with Jesus. And as I left that building, I remember praying, God, I believe you're faithful. God, I believe you'll carry this precious family through this. God, I I believe you'll use it for their good, but help my unbelief. I'm sure you can probably think of a situation where you've had to ask God to help overcome your unbelief. Maybe it's not thinking of something you've been through. Maybe you're going through that right now. Well, if that's you, I just would encourage you, take whatever faith you have, no matter how small it is, and take it to Jesus, just like this father did. Be honest about your doubts. He knows them anyway, and ask him, to help you overcome that unbelief. You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, there's the passage that's called the Hall of Faith. And it mentions multiple people in the Old Testament who were commended for their faith. Abraham, Sarah, Gideon, and David are just some of the ones in the list. And they're they're listed in this faith hall of fame. And all of them had periods of doubt. Abraham lied twice about Sarah being his wife because he doubted God's ability to protect him. Sarah laughed when she first heard that she was going to have a child in her old age and then tried to deny it. Gideon put God to all sorts of tests before he would step out in obedience and read the Psalms and you'll see that David struggled at times with all kinds of doubt. But all of them took that doubt to God. In the end, they all made up their mind to believe him and stand on his promises and his character. Now, I want to make sure as we talk about this that it doesn't sound like saying, Jesus helped me overcome my unbelief puts Jesus in a situation where he has to grant our wishes like some cosmic genie. We know that all things are possible when we believe, but that doesn't mean we always know God's will. And Jesus models this in his prayer in the garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed. In Mark 14, 36, Jesus cries out, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. See, Jesus knew everything was possible with faith. He knew that everything was possible through God. But he goes on to say, please take this cup of suffering away from me, yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. See, Jesus knew everything was possible with God the Father. It wasn't a question of if God could, right? That was the question this father with the demon-possessed boy asked Jesus. He said, said, help us if you can. Jesus wasn't approaching God the Father with an if-you-can question. Jesus was approaching God the Father with if it's your will. I know you can do this. But Jesus wanted to fulfill the will of the Father more than anything. And that's the same way that we pray. When we come to Jesus with small faith or big faith, we know that everything is possible, but we want God to do His will. We continue on in the passage, verse 25 and 26. When Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, He rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, he said. I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet, and he stood up. So after the father's request for Jesus to help him overcome his unbelief, Jesus notices that the crowd is growing. And as Jesus has often done in the gospel of Mark, he's trying not to cause too big of a scene with this healing. There's already plenty of contention between him and the religious leaders. So he commands the spirit to come out of the boy and never enter him again. Jesus is, heals the boy in spite of the man's small faith. See, he heals him in spite of the fact that he's annoyed by the unbelief and faithlessness of those around. And he not only delivers this boy from the evil spirit, he forbids the evil spirit from ever entering him again. This evil spirit knows his time is up, so he takes one last shot at trying to destroy the boy. He goes into another violent convulsion before he leaves. This leaves the boy motionless on the ground. It appears the boy has died. The verse says that a murmur ran through the crowd. So it seems like Jesus let the tension sit in the air for a while. Jesus let it appear as though this young boy was dead. The crowds are looking on and they begin to pass the word to one another. He's dead. I wonder what was going through the dad's mind. And he had just prayed for Jesus to help him overcome his unbelief. And now it seems like he's lost his son. It didn't work, the plan failed. Jesus wasn't powerful enough, the enemy won. But just when it looked like all hope was lost, Jesus reaches down and picks him up by the hand and he stands up. In the ESV version, it says Jesus took him by the hand and he arose. He arose. Does that sound familiar? I don't think it's a coincidence that this miracle takes place between two conversations where Jesus tells the disciples explicitly he's going to be killed and rise again. As he was coming off the mountain, he told Peter, James, and John that. They still didn't understand it. The passage we're going to look at next week, he tells them specifically what's going to happen, and they don't get it. And just like the gradual healing of the blind man a couple of weeks ago was a metaphor, so is this healing. See, when Jesus goes to the cross, it's going to look like the plan didn't work. It's going to look like the enemy had won and Jesus isn't powerful enough, but he's going to arise. He's going to arise just like this young boy did. The grave is no match for him, just like this evil spirit in the boy was no match for Jesus. And that's going to take us into the last part of the lesson for today, and that is the lesson. The most important factor here isn't the measure of our faith. It's the object of our faith. It takes a consistent recognition of our dependence upon God and His power. And prayer is one of the most effectual spiritual disciplines to remind us of our dependence on God. Let's go to the last part of the text, verse 28 and 29. It says, afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house of His disciples, they asked Him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? Jesus replied, this kind can only be cast out by prayer. There's no indication that the father's faith grew drastically as he asked Jesus to help him overcome his unbelief. That's not what caused Jesus to heal the boy. The man recognized his dependence on Jesus. He knew he couldn't even overcome his unbelief unless Jesus helped him do it. So when the dust settled and Jesus had retired into a home with his disciples, they asked him, Jesus, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? And Jesus replied, this kind can only be cast out by prayer. Why do you think Jesus said that? Like what does prayer do? Right, We don't pray to inform God of anything. God is all-knowing. He already knows every desire we have, every need we have, every sin we need to confess. We go to God in prayer because it forces us to recognize our dependence on him. That prayer is, is the ultimate pathway to humility. That we approach God knowing we need Him, knowing we depend on Him for the very breath that we breathe. See, God invites us to come and lift our needs to Him. And this, again, reminds us of just how dependent we are on Him. In some translations, in Matthew's version of this incident, in Matthew 17, Jesus tells the disciples this kind of demon can only be brought out by prayer and fasting. Both prayer and fasting focus our attention on God. They remind us of the object of our faith. I think maybe the disciples had forgotten who had given them the authority to cast out demons. They had forgotten their authority was from the God of the universe. So maybe they had become prideful and were looking to their own power or maybe with the pressure of the onlooking religious leaders, they simply began to doubt Jesus, and they began to doubt the authority he had given them. He also tells them in the Matthew account that if they had the faith of even a mustard seed, they could move mountains. See, it's the object of our faith, not the quantity of our faith that is most important. Now, Jesus definitely wants our faith to grow. Jesus does not want you to to keep a small faith. This passage is clear that he was annoyed by the lack of faith. But if he is the object of our faith, he's patient with us, and he'll help us grow that faith muscle, especially when we ask him to. When we come to him and say, Jesus, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I want to go back to the question that we asked at the very beginning of the podcast. Where do you turn when faced with the impossible? Do you turn to family, friends, your own power or your own resources, or do you turn to Jesus? You know, the Bible says that all of us face an impossible situation, not something that just seems impossible, something that truly is impossible, and that's overcoming our sin problem and restoring our relationship with God by our own effort. We can't do it. It's not something that seems impossible, it truly is impossible. But God, in his mercy, sent Jesus, who lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He went to the cross and he paid the price that we should have paid. And when we turn to him and ask him to forgive us and trust in his finished work on the cross, this amazing miracle happens. We become children of God. We get to trade our guilt and our shame for his righteousness. So if you're listening today and you've never done that, I just want to encourage you with with whatever amount of faith you have, turn to him. Take that faith and turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. I may not have all the answers, Jesus. I, I still have some doubt. But with all that I do have, with every bit of faith I have, I trust you and I surrender to you. If you did that for the first time and would like to get connected with a mentor to help you walk through that as you pursue Jesus in this newness of life, reach out to us at PursueGod.org. We'd love to help you get connected. And we will see you next week as we continue on in the Gospel of Mark and talk about the upside-down kingdom.